Hi, I'm Hannah Durden and you're listening to the Outdoors Group podcast. This podcast is a call to arms to get children and young people outside again. It's your one-stop shop for all things outdoor, child, young person and education related. Thanks for tuning in. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Matt Lewis, Engagement Manager at Paint and Zoo. Paint and Zoo is part of Wild Planet Trust, whose mission is to help halt species decline. They're passionate about making conservation accessible and engaging to people of all ages. And Matt says that the need for action has never been more urgent. A trip to the zoo can provide a pivotal moment for young people to discover how amazing nature is and how we need to protect it for the future. Thanks for joining me today, Matt. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> um, so the best place to start is probably asking about what brought you to Paint and Zoo. Kind of, have you always worked in education and conservation? I've worked in zoos and with animals for uh, probably over 20 years. Um, I didn't always work in conservation. I trained as a marine biologist and then I worked uh, offshore as a fishery scientist for a oh, really cool. brief period before okay. realising that I didn't want to be offshore all the time. <laughs> so then I uh, went and worked at an aquarium, a public aquarium, doing public education mm. and then a zoo. And then I worked in uh, taking animals into schools and things like that for, for 20 years. Oh, okay, amazing. Do you still do... Do so paint and zoo take animals in school? No, paint no, no, but that was a different zoo. Yeah, paint and zoo doesn't do uh, outreach. Mm. They, um, other zoos do, but we don't do outreach with animals. But uh, uh, that was when I was self-employed. Okay. Taking animals into schools up in Scotland, so I spent a lot of time up in Aberdeen. Okay, but that was quite challenging. Yeah, good fun. <laughs> good fun. What kind yeah. of animals did you take into the zoo? Uh, I took in like pythons, bearded dragons, okay. cockroaches, uh, tarantulas, scorpions, yeah. and giant African land snails. And at that time up in Aberdeen, there weren't any, uh, basically no local zoos. So it was quite a good way to chat to children about wildlife and to actually get them to hopefully fall in love with wildlife. Yeah. It's good fun. Oh, Ten years. that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now what does your role as engagement manager involve? So engagement manager is basically managing the public talks and the public activities and the school talks and activities mm. for the various groups that come to Paint and Zoo and Nuki Zoo as well. Uh, we get about... Well, combined between the two zoos, we get about half a million visitors a year. And we're trying to uh, talk to them in a fun way to add to their day and to try and get them to fall in love with wildlife and to help us in our fight to help help species decline, basically. So we want to get them to fall in love with (laughs) wildlife. That sounds like you've got quite a lot on your plate to be uh, managing. (laughs) Yeah, it's a small team, but we're quite busy most of the time. And it's things like with the public, we're doing talks and games and... Um, what we call hot spotting, which is just where you go into an, uh, an enclosure and actually point out the animals and help people to, to understand them better. Okay, cool. And do you split your time between Paynton and Newquay? A bit, but yeah. I'm based at Paynton and uh, I get down to Newquay as often as I can, yeah. but uh, realistically there's uh, a limit because we're busy here with schools and they're yeah. busy there with schools. So. Yeah, awesome. Um, so obviously I have got a lot of experience with young people visiting the zoo um, and we kind of talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but... How, how, how do you find it when you talk to them about the challenges we're facing in terms of species decline and climate change? Are they kind of engaging and caring? Or, I mean, obviously it depends on ages, which is what we were saying earlier, but what's the kind of reaction you get from the kids that you're working with? I think a lot of the pupils who visit have got a basic understanding or have certain, certainly come across the problems that are facing wildlife and you know, climate change and biodiversity loss. So they've come across the ideas that the wildlife is in trouble but actually coming here to the zoo they care Mm. but 
I think coming to the zoo actually helps them to understand that this is that animal that is in trouble in the wild. So when we're talking about, you know, a giant tortoise or a macaque or a, a giraffe, is that they've come to the zoo and they, they, can, they can then picture it in their mind more fully than when they just see it on TV. Yeah. So they understand it as a, as a living being better. Yeah. Um, so I think they've got a good, a lot of children now have got a good awareness of the problems that are going on in the world, but not actually realising that they're real and they're affecting real live animals. Yeah. You know, it's like an abstract concept. Yeah, something. yeah, it's just something they see yeah. on David Attenborough. <laughs> yeah, whereas coming here to the zoo makes it real, makes Brings it, it to understand that, yeah. that giraffe's cousins are in trouble in the wild. So. Yeah. Yeah. And are you finding certain ages are more kind of open to it than others? Uh, yeah, uh, sadly, it's, it's a well-known problem that teenagers uh, don't visit the zoo as much, but they also suffer a big... Uh, sort of drop in nature connections. So, mm. uh, in terms of when we're looking at uh, pupils and how well connected they are with nature, that in primary school you see sort of interesting changes over time. But in secondary school, there's a big loss in the connection with the natural world. Yeah. And, uh, but they're the same children who don't visit us here, so it's quite difficult to reach out to those yeah. groups. What kinds of things do you do to try and engage in them a bit more? Those older groups. Well, with secondary pupils, it's a problem. Full stop. Actually, yeah. getting them here because of the pressures of the modern curriculum and yeah. the school performance is actually for the schools trying to get the children, excuse me, students here. Yeah. Uh, is a problem for them and yeah. for us. We will happily talk to them, but actually getting them to join oh, in on the even conversations. I thought about that. Getting yeah. them even into the zoo in the first place. Yeah. And when they're here, trying to get them to talk to us rather than just, you know, toddle off with their Mess friends. Mess around with their friends. Yeah. 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 It's another problem. Uh, it must feel quite rewarding when you do get some good conversations with the teenagers. Yeah, we get some really good yeah. chats from the teenagers once they're engaged. And yeah. Perhaps when it's when they're in smaller groups. So today, I was talking to some large groups of secondary pupils. It's quite difficult to break through that mm. front that you have to. Um, whereas when we've got a smaller group of secondary pupils, even the same students today, when I saw them in smaller groups, were much more chatty. Yeah. But... The problem for us is that we're dealing with large numbers of pupils here, yeah. and often the best way to deal with them is in small groups. But we can't <laughs> yes. do that. Lots and lots <laughs> of counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If um, I'm guessing you've got like a set of different kind of subjects that you talk to them about. Are there any in particular that they kind of like, like the more kind of sexy topics for them to go? Oh, this is exciting. Well, for the teachers and for primary kids, mm. then you're talking about habitats mm. and food chains. Um, and rainforests are the classic core subjects that teachers will often approach us and ask if we can link to and we yeah. can link to those but from my point of view I think with the older pupils then climate change uh, is really neatly illustrated up at our giant tortoise exhibit mm. so when you've got the tortoises there and you can talk about the fact that if there is a change in the temperature it can affect the ratio of males versus females that hatch out of the eggs okay so you've got a species there that is really directly affected now if i get this the right way around <laughs> the warmer it gets the more females you okay. get hatching and that should be a good thing in terms of the survival of the species but of course there's a point at which you need but also uh, our tortoises come from aldabra which is a low-lying atoll so if sea levels rise and you get mm. more extreme weather events then you know the potential for that population being affected in the wild by yeah. rising sea levels is, is really high yeah. yeah kind of interesting to take two topics climate change and sea level rise that were really neatly illustrated by one species yeah one species yeah and we can introduce that species to the students yeah. by name like we have elvis and timmy and miley and dora and we can say <laughs> that these animals in the wild would be affected by these yeah concepts and they might not yeah might not survive in the long yeah. term yeah 
Who named them, by the way? Uh, the keepers normally name the animals. <laughs> Sometimes they have reasons behind them. Uh, but uh, uh, Dora, for example, is Dora the Explorer because she was found climbing over rocks and managed to <laughs> so be found uh, toddling off down the pathway. Oh, OK. <laughs> now have more... Um, more security. Yeah, more fence <laughs> in the way to keep Dora from keep exploring. Her, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's quite funny. Um, when I visited the zoo um, recently with my children, I think we did one of your workshops and you were mentioning that after COVID you'd start to take a lot of the workshops outside, whereas previously they might have been inside as a matter of kind of necessity because of all our regulations that happened around that kind of time. But you were saying then that you've kept a lot of them outdoors. Um, is, is, do you find it to be a more kind of engaging experience outside? Why, why have you kept them? Yeah, COVID, outdoors? COVID forced us outside because we weren't allowed to do the sessions mm. indoors. It also... For the zoo, as a charity, we lost lots of income mm. and lots of our reserves. We're, as a charity, we're not allowed large reserves, but the money we'd saved up for new enclosures went on simply surviving. And after surviving COVID, we had a very reduced team, especially in education. Mm. So we were then faced with having groups that wanted to visit the zoo again, but we couldn't talk to them inside, and there were yeah. fewer of us. But that also gave us a chance as a kind of smaller team to reinvent the way we were talking to groups so we started yeah. meeting groups of students at enclosures so when a, when a school group came in instead of meet, bring them coming into a classroom we would meet them at the giant tortoise enclosure yeah. we'd meet them at the giraffe enclosure and we found that we were having a much better response and a better yeah. experience uh, yeah. with the pupils doing that now <laughs> when I did teacher training up in Scotland like a few years ago then outdoor learning was being pushed quite strongly up in Scotland mm. and there were um, you know one of the schools I trained in had a forest school and I could see sort of clear clearly even when I early on I could understand the advantages of taking children out into a different environment but the strange thing is that having seen that when I was here at the zoo we would often teach children in a classroom yeah and uh, when Covid made us move outside you then thought well, why were we talking inside all along? Yeah, well, why am I show, showing a primary child a PowerPoint slide of an animal when we've got the well, real the animal outside. just outside? <laughs> but because it, we were trying to deal with large numbers of children and also because the teachers had, I guess, um, the teachers who were coming here expected us to teach in classrooms. When mm. we said, well, we'll do it outside, yeah. it's taken a short time, but I think most teachers now are happy with the way we're meeting them at yeah. an enclosure. Yeah. And we're able to say, look at that giraffe yeah. behind me. It's more authentic. Uh, it's, yeah. yeah, much more authentic. And for the kids, for the pupils, I think it's much more engaging yeah. and stimulating. So yeah. I do wonder why, why we did it start it inside at the beginning? Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's just a legacy thing. Yeah, I think that... Um, you know, you settle into patterns and mm. generally accepted uh, ways of doing things. And it's much more convenient to teach children inside yeah. here. You know, in this room, I know your listeners can't see it, but in this room we've got a collection of skeletons and artefacts that we can't really take out around site. No. But we ended up in here all the time with children, telling them to sit still, be quiet, yeah. not touch. And when we're out and about, we rarely have to tell children to sit still and be quiet because yeah. they don't need to be, but also because we've yeah. got the animals there... They're generally much more They're engaged. more interested anyway, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Scotland's always been ahead of the rest of the uh, UK, hasn't it, in terms of education? I think they've been pushing outdoor learning for a lot longer than England has. Uh, I don't know, because my experience, my limited experience of Scotland, classroom yeah. teaching was in Scotland. Yeah. And yeah, they were, my lecturers and sort of mentor teachers at the time were mm. big fans of outdoor learning. Yeah. And it's strange, particularly here, 
we've seen um, at the zoo, we've seen that when you take uh, groups where perhaps uh, the children were struggling to concentrate before, when you then take them to another enclosure, mm. you they are listening perfectly well without yeah. you having to tell them to yeah. sit still, be quiet and watch. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess there's less distractions in some yeah. way, and yeah. It doesn't matter if they're bouncing on their feet a little bit when no. you're outside and things. No, and also, um, just historically, there would have been um, basically a small charge for sessions that we ran indoors. That's more difficult if you're dealing with a smaller group. Mm. Um, where, so if we're dealing with smaller groups out and about in the zoo, it's really easy for us to meet them, chat to them for 15 minutes. It takes yeah. up very little of their day. Yeah. And I think we generally get our message across more clearly yeah. and hopefully better received with the kids. Yeah. So more questions too, right? So, yeah, more questions because yeah. they can see the animal or what's that yeah. animal doing or why is he eating that or yeah. 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 yeah, and it's you more... get to know the personalities, don't you, of which animals are more confident. Yeah, and that, that can really help us. If we're trying to take it take a person and try and we we want them to feel the same way that we do about animals, yeah. or we want it to them to at least understand what's going on in the world and hope hopefully feel yeah. more fondly about it. So when we can introduce uh, tortoise and say this is Timmy yeah. and tell the story of how Timmy came here then the children can hopefully link to that animal as an yeah. individual yeah and then hopefully that will carry across carry across I remember going to the aquarium and hearing about their I don't know whether it be a turtle or a tortoise my a turtle, turtle have, yeah, yeah and her, their story and my kids talked about it for like a month afterwards like yeah. well, isn't it sad what happened and isn't it good that you got rescued and stuff but um, yeah that kind of thing sticks with them doesn't it yeah and there's a fine line because obviously some people would say, well, you're being anthropomorphic. But actually, <laughs> if you uh, know that animal and you can tell the story of it, then that story can is much more easy to, for the child to remember to yeah. get their head around. So. And, yeah I, I, yeah, I see the anthropomorphism. I can't say that word. <laughs> but that criticism. But on the other hand, animals do have personalities, don't they? Like, you are going to get ones that are more cheeky and interact with the keepers. and ones Yeah, there's are... research at the minute that's coming out that's shown a lot more of, uh, a lot better understanding of the emotions mm. that animals feel. Yeah. When previously we would have said, oh, well, you can't say that that animal yeah. is feeling that because you can't know. Well, now we yeah. know that you can know. Yeah. That that animal is feeling distressed yeah. or in pain or happy. Particularly your primates, I'm guessing? Uh, yeah, but actually, strangely, we tend to, uh, when we're meeting groups outdoors, we don't often meet them at the primates. I oh, okay. I think just partly the way that our animals are and are displayed. We often meet them at, uh, you know, giant tortoises would be a favourite one. Mm. I suppose lemurs we would be the primate yeah. we, we use a lot because there's a really interesting conservation story there right now happening in Madagascar. So. Oh, is there? Yeah. So uh, ring-tailed lemurs are one of the most familiar animals. If you show one, a picture of one to, an ad- uh, to a child, they will know instantly. It's, From the film, probably. Yeah, it's King Julian. But uh, <laughs> in the situation in Madagascar with civil unrest and drought caused by um, climate change, mm. uh, has meant that the number of ring-tailed lemurs has just plummeted in the last okay. 20 years. So really, uh, they think there are fewer than 2,000 ring-tailed lemurs left in the wild. Wow. Um, so there are more in zoos okay. and wild animal parks than there are in the wild, which is disastrous. Yeah. You know. So what, in terms of, obviously, the Wild Planet Trust trying to halt species to climb, what practical things can that kind of trust do to try and improve that? Like, is there much they can do beyond keeping them in zoos? Or? So we've got the classic arc populations here, uh, things like the ring-tailed lemurs mm. and also sakura doves uh, and lots of other species that we're working with, which are, we're holding safe, captive populations mm. of. But also we are working with um, projects in the countries where the animals are found. So uh, Wild Planet Trust at the moment is concentrating on a lot of projects in Africa. So we're 
dealing with, uh, there's a forest reserve in Nigeria that we helped to fund the patrols okay. for. It's called yeah. Omo Forest Reserve. And that's one of the um, homes of the forest elephant, the, the third okay. species of elephant. Uh, we also work with a project in, another example would be in Zimbabwe. We work with Dambari, which is a, um, a wildlife conservancy that helps to look after rhinos. So yeah. we help to fund anti-poaching patrols there. Oh, okay. And uh, we've been working in Tanzania with a project there to conserve basically rare anf- antelopes and amphibians. So, oh, okay. So we've got a number of Lots projects of stuff like that. going on, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just kind of funding people that are on the ground doing Yeah, stuff. but I think also... Importantly, the people who come to the zoo mm. are the ones that we stand the best chance of hopefully engaging with mm. and getting them to you know, be more supportive of the problems that yeah. are facing wildlife. Yeah. Well, um, I think this is one of my questions for later on, but I was just going <laughs> to ask about it now while we were talking about it. Like, how can like, the average person kind of help with these conservation efforts? Like, would it be a case of helping what's on their doorstep rather than trying to make an impact on something that's on the other side of the world i think the um single most important thing is to do something yeah uh, and to do it soon so there's um there's some evidence that basically when people do something to try and help nature they start to see themselves as people who help nature Mm. it's a mindset shift so instead of just being that the problems that nature has will be solved by someone if you start doing things whether that is planting a tree or helping to clean up a beach, or at the supermarket choosing something with sustainable palm oil in it, then you're growing a habit, or starting a habit that will grow, and then hopefully that person will become more likely to help protect nature, more likely to see themselves as somebody who who helps protect Mm. nature. I think that's really important, because what you want is that growing shift towards, or that growing culture of people caring for wildlife. And I guess the more people that do it, the more their friends and family are going to yeah. be influenced by what they're doing. Yeah, so when you're having a family argument about something, then you say, well, no, hold on, that's not true because yeah. you know, we need to reduce the amount of plastic mm. we're using because mm. of this problem in, in the ocean. Then you know, that, even if it's a child having that argument at home, it, can, it makes people think about what they're doing, about their impact. Yeah. So I don't know if it'll all work. <laughs> but, but we I can hope try. It was. And yeah. if we don't try, then nothing's going to happen. No, exactly. And what I was thinking about shifts that happen without us realising, because I think when I was a child, like 20 years ago, I don't remember there being like recycling for cardboard and plastic and things. Yeah. I just remember everything going in the bin. And now you think everyone recycles, like literally, well, maybe there are not everyone, but it's, yeah. you know, majority of people do do their recycling now. And you think that's a big shift in like 20 years, like, that's a big impact, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and that sort of um, cultural norm is maybe the way we need to yeah. tackle other And like things. plastic bottles, like everyone kind of, everyone knows that not to buy them if they don't have to type thing. Whereas yeah. 10 years ago, it wasn't such a thing, was it? No. Exactly that. So. Yeah, making those changes. And I guess for you guys working with children and young people, they're trying to influence their parents and the adults in their life uh, if they've come and often they might go home and go, Mum, did you know this? And yeah, yeah, and it's difficult because uh, if you explain it clumsily, as I often do, it's about <laughs> I'm going, sure that's home not true. <laughs> going home and nagging your parents to ask them to look for this. Of course, then some parents would be like saying, well, why is this man at the zoo telling us to look out for <laughs> sustainable palm oil? You know, but if, uh, if you can start that conversation, at least if the person is thinking about it, at least mm. the pupil or the parent at home is actually thinking about yeah. what what sustainable means, what... Yeah, and then the next time I'm in the supermarket, they might go, oh, it's only 50p more, I'll do yeah. that. Or, yeah, uh, small changes. Small changes, yeah. Um, I'm going to circle back from conservation to um, 
the education kind of work that you guys are doing. Um, obviously, there's lots of ways to do workshops in regards to like teaching and or facilitation of yeah. sharing of information. What what do you? I mean, obviously, this, again, this is going to depend on the age of the people you're working with. But what kind of do you find the most effective way to engage with them? Like, I mean, most of us know that kids don't really like to just be talked at. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, what what what's your kind of approach? How do you? What's your method of delivery that you like to use? There's conflict here because yeah. we're, you know, as a big busy visitor attraction. Uh, sorry, my stomach's running. No, that's fine. As a big busy visitor attraction, we're trying to deal with large numbers of pupils and the general public. Mm. But the flip side of that is that the best way for us to be dealing with groups is in smaller groups. Yeah. And possibly smaller than the classes they're arriving in. They're coming in, yeah. But for us, we really have to deal with them as a class unit or mm. as a unit of people, even as an audience, mm. if we're talking with the general public. And I know that really we should be dealing with them in smaller groups. So that's and, quite challenging. Yeah, and that, that, there's a conflict there. But that said, is we have changed the way we do the workshop. So instead of it being a, a workshop, it's normally now that we'll meet you for, for an informal chat at an enclosure. Mm. And we set the pupils some challenges at the start of the day. So on arrival, we'll set challenges for them. One is normally something like to look out for a critically endangered species, and we'll show them the rainbow that they need to look yeah. out for um, that indicates where the animal is on the conservation spectrum mm. but then we'll also set another challenge so I'll often carry a mystery object in my pocket um, and it'll be something like uh, maybe the a whisker from a tiger yeah and I'll show the children it at the start of the day and I'll say you'll see this somewhere on your visit keep your eyes peeled and what we're trying to do is get them engaged in looking yeah not do you say reading. a whisker from yeah. a tiger yeah so <laughs> something like that and if we can get them to engage not with they're not looking for answers. They're not think, jotting things down no. on, an, on a worksheet because worksheets mean you're looking down, not looking up. Yeah. But if they're looking for that and then they see me later on, they say, oh, I've seen the yeah. mystery object. It was a... Yeah. And so, that sounds like a really tricky one. I'm yeah. stuck on that. The well, there's others. <laughs> but they, um, sometimes, quite often, they'll get it right. Yeah. But what hopefully you've done there is actually getting the kids to look around as they're here so mm. they're then active in their learning they're looking yeah. around trying to answer the questions but without them ending up filling in a worksheet which yeah. is not what we want no uh, and so we'll probably go in the bin when they get home anyway yeah so in answer to your question about what um how have we sort of changed the workshops or the approach that we take is mm. I, i've found that having these challenges has been really good fun yeah way of getting the kids engaged in the learning process yeah. but also that means that then when you meet them later on you've got more dialogue with them because instead of it being me just chatting at them as mm. I'm talking at you now, um, it's me asking them, have you seen? Have you guessed? Yeah. What do you think? And I know we should have more dialogue. Like It should be a long discussion about the problems the animals are facing in the world. But a lot of it, of course, is us. We have to quickly tell them yeah. about the problems. But by then getting them to spot a critically endangered species, they're getting them involved in the process yeah, as well. Yeah, look, and then they can see other animals and once they're looking at that rainbow of, uh, what do you say? Yeah, it's sort of conservation yeah. um, status. When, yeah. When on our signs, we, we use a rainbow, well, it's not, not a rainbow, but we use a that spectrum arch, yeah. Uh, yeah, to, to show where uh, a species is. And mm. for us, like getting children to look at and understand a little bit about that yeah. and, and talking about what being endangered means. And sometimes it's surprising which ones 
are more endangered than others. I remember going around and I can't remember which one I thought, and I thought, oh, I thought that was fine, but obviously yeah. it's not. <laughs> um, yeah, there can be some surprises. Yeah. And I think the other thing we do as well, we take along a lot of props. So typically, if I was doing a talk at a, a big cat enclosure, mm. then I would take along uh, a replica of a big cat skull. Yeah. And then I might take along either a replica of a cheetah skull, mm. which then shows how tiny and fragile it is. Um, so you can talk about like speed or competition or you know like roles within the ecological system you know you, you've got things like that or you might take along something completely different like an ostrich egg that yeah. the, it, the kids can see something different big interesting yeah yeah we saw a prop at the giraffe enclosure and I can't remember what it was now it might have been a vertebra yes or yeah I think so it was huge one. yeah talking at certain enclosures we've got some props just a few that we can actually pass around to touch so if I was yeah. chatting about you know, snakes, and you, you've got snake skins that yeah. pass around. And that, I think, is magic, because then you're unlocking that sensory side of things. Yeah. So with, uh, a, you know, perhaps um, snake skin is a really good uh, example, because you can see it, touch it, feel mm. it. it. It helps to drive a bit of a different experience into yeah. the child's head. Yeah, yeah. So. Absolutely. What kind of challenges do you... I'm just thinking back to the teens again, because... I've um I've talked to quite a few people who work in either conservation or kind of these kind of wildlifey, uh, they're kind of half attraction, half um yeah. educational things, and it's always the teens that people say are like the ones that present like younger kids are like just enthusiastic, aren't they? They're happy to be outside yeah. of the classroom. They're happy to be engaged. So, what kind of challenges would you set the teenagers at the beginning of the day? Same things. Or uh, often slightly different. Uh, it depends if they're studying something. Uh, that it may provide a clue as to what challenge we can set them. Mm. So, you know, uh, with certain classes, I might get them to look for the extinct in the wild species. So mm. we, we care for one species that's extinct in the wild. Can you find it? Um, with other ones, with different ages of children, I might yeah. get them to, or different ages of student, I might get them to, to choose which animal they would want to be at the zoo. Yeah. With secondary pupils, you could be saying, we'll choose an animal that you think your friend could be because okay. it introduces a bit of an element of humour into it. Yeah. Or... Um, looking for enrichment examples is yeah. quite a good one because if you're looking for something looking for a way in which we've improved the animal's life yeah it shows how yeah. much care the keepers go for yeah because i guess if teenagers are cynical about zoos which some of them are then yeah. that's a nice way to be like no we really care for animals yeah and then you're getting them to look around and realize that how much effort the keepers really do put yeah. into it i think often with the uh teenage audiences i would choose a bigger prop yeah <laughs> which is very sad <laughs> Um, to admit that you're just trying, you know, using a, something bigger to make them go wow, but yeah, but it works. It works, yeah. So <laughs> using a uh, like a croc skull or yeah. something like that is always quite impressive. Yeah. Um, and quite often it's just getting students to actually start talking to you. Yeah. Awesome. And um, so you guys have got the for people that don't know, it's your centenary this year, isn't yeah. it? One hundred years. One hundred years, which seems absolutely mad, yeah. doesn't it? Like. I was thinking about it when I saw it because someone said it can't be a hundred years that the zoo's been open, and I said, "Oh, I think it's." Um, it seems like a really long time. Yeah, so Herbert Whitley started uh, this zoo one hundred years ago. So was he a conservationist or an explorer? No, he was, um, he was. Basically, um, his family had made a lot of money in brewing. Okay. And beer. Yep. Okay. And part of the I think the Green King family uh, or business, and mm. they had made their money in that. But when Herbert um, and his family moved to Devon and moved into uh, a nearby house. Then he, his collection grew and grew, and then oh, he his opened collection it to, of animals. Okay. Yeah, he opened it to the public in nineteen twenty three. Okay. And 
um, it's grown a lot since, yeah, yeah, both absolutely. in terms of collection and in terms of numbers, yeah. the people we get. So. And also in terms of the purpose, I guess, of the zoo. Like, well, just... he did have a, he had a big argument at the start about the, with the tax man, actually, about the fact that he thought the zoo was a place of education. So okay. he actually, he basically refused to pay an entertainment tax okay. on the admissions and said that the zoo was a place of education. Okay. And that if the uh, HMRC didn't recognise that he was going to shut the zoo so he shut the zoo for a number of years oh, did he? And then, okay. uh, but, but basically he's been arguing about it being um, education since and okay. I think now we talk about it being more being more important to engage with people like just to get people thinking yeah. rather than I don't want them to learn more about the animals no. that's wonderful isn't yeah. it? but I do want them to think more yeah well that's still so, kind of education isn't it yeah. though? like different yeah. skills critical thinking and yeah um, and just actually uh, um, re- linking between the real world issues and what Mm. and what they see here. So you're, for people that don't know, you're doing this Schools Go Free for, to celebrate, which now seems even more appropriate if he was yeah. arguing about education. So your year is getting quite busy, I'm guessing. Yeah, we've had a really good take-up on the offer. So when we were talking about ways to celebrate or to mark our centenary, one of the ways that was chosen was for us to admit um, school pupils. So basically school pupils here... Um, five to sixteen mm. years, um, and at Newquay for free for this year. We've we've been very busy, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but it's been uh, we've I I know that we've spoken to a lot of pupils that you wouldn't have otherwise spoken yeah, to yeah. who maybe may have travelled from further afield, but also there's some schools that simply could not afford to have yeah, no budget cuts, yeah. they just couldn't do it. Yeah, and that's been really nice to hear teachers say we wouldn't have been able to come here today. It's sad to hear, but it's obviously nice for us to know. Yeah, that nice that you've made an impact yeah. for them. Yeah. Yeah. So what that will be for the rest of the year, and then you'll uh, breathe a relief. Have a breathe, yeah. a month off to relax yeah. before you. Yeah, we're a small bells. team, and I think the um, the load, the consistent number of people that we're getting through at the moment to meet is really quite challenging. When yeah. when for that person, for that learner, it's their day at the zoo, mm. and I want them to know that I'm excited about wildlife yeah. and to, I want them to, to feel that yeah. but of course when you've, when you've done it five days a week for a... yeah. and um, it's been a, a busy year but um, I think we still get that across I think yeah. it's still people understand will it calm down a bit in the summer holidays in the sense that you won't have the school groups I mean obviously yeah. you'll have more tourists but, yeah. um, but then my team will be busy talking to do, doing the general doing talks, the so. general talks and so the general talks are they more like that kind of ten minutes of information and then some questions time for questions uh yeah like they're very short very informal chatty mm. talks we're really aiming for a sort of conversation rather than um we don't want people to learn from the talks but we do yeah. want them to understand a little bit more yeah that's difficult in terms of balance because obviously you want people to know about your animals a little bit but you want them to know about the issues in the wild yeah with every species that we're talking here here at the zoo, we don't we wouldn't mention conservation in every talk. So no. if it's not the most important factor with that species, or if we can do that, we'll try and make sure that talks have different subjects. Yeah. And not not always doing the same thing. Talking about the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I I think we've probably covered most of the things I wanted to talk about today. Um, was there anything else you wanted to talk about today that we haven't covered? Anything about the zoo that you wanted to tell us? We pretty much covered it. <laughs> I think sometimes it's a bit more challenging for us with the activities that we run. So here in the classroom is if we were challenge, set, when we were planning an activity mm. that we can use 
we can run certain activities that we cannot take out into the zoo. Yeah. We have very limited cupboard spaces, so a lot of outdoor schools, forest schools, will have a sheltered area. Yeah, yeah. We really struggle around the zoo to find sheltered areas where we can talk about the animals. Yeah. So that's one thing. Longer term, we probably need more sheltered areas. Yeah, put some tarps <laughs> Yeah, basically, and trying to do that in a way that's appropriate for a you know, big visitor attraction is quite yeah, difficult. Accessibility having, and things, yeah. Yeah, so having some um, nice areas under cover would be good, but when I'm talking to children about uh, marine plastic pollution, we mm. do a session called plastic oceans and in the classroom we can use real beach found litter yeah. and the children sort through it and we talk about the story of how it got into the sea to do that out on site would be really difficult. really challenging yeah. so will i think we will still have to offer some yeah sessions indoors the ones that are yeah. most appropriate but i've been really happy about moving outdoors yeah it's so much better to show a real giraffe than it is to show a powerpoint so, and i was saying when it's um raining we still go outside when you can oh, yeah because yeah. the kids normally come in pretty well anyway. yeah Clothes, it's m- me. I'm a weakling. But... <laughs> Just to keep running back to get your coat from the car. <laughs> yeah, and of course, if it does start raining, uh, re- very recently I was talking up at the giraffes, which is the most exposed end of the mm. zoo with very little shelter nearby. And it's quite high up, isn't it? So yeah, windy. and I did not have a coat. And as I started talking, the rain started and it didn't stop. And of course, for those children, they stood there getting drenched. They were doing the best they could to listen. Yeah. I couldn't just move it somewhere else. No, no, you just do it, yeah. <laughs> so there'll always be challenges on a... But then they'll probably remember that even more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the day that experience. mad nutter talks to them about giraffes in the French. <laughs> While <room>. shivering. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, like, as you were saying about having to do some of them inside, it's just a compromise, isn't it? And there are some things that are more appropriate. Like if you've got a big tray of plastic litter, like you don't want that flying around the zoo. Yeah. But I think it, maybe it's uh, maybe COVID made us reassess where we do it and just mm. it just broke the habit of always being yeah. in the classroom. Yeah. I think sometimes we will need to come back into the classroom. Yeah, that helps you think outside um, the box a bit more. Yeah, and uh, also it made us realise that some of the workshops that we were doing inside were fun and they were the ones the children were enjoying. So we've mm. recently, uh, Joe, my colleague, um, relaunched a, an escape room type Oh, cool. Activity, which is what we call Conservation Conundrum. And so Joe came up with this really neat uh, series of challenges that link into the problems of palm oil. Okay. And that would be very difficult to run out on site. Yeah. But it's not a, you know, chalk and talk classroom mm. session. Sounds really fun. But really good <laughs> yeah. fun. But very, very hard work to run because your brain is having to whir away <laughs> um, and try and keep up with the children. Yeah. But maybe that's the way we need to go. Yeah. Just thinking about what sessions are best and where they're the best to run yeah. and where they're outside, wonderful. We've got two nature reserves next door that we yeah. own, you know, that we could be using as well. So yeah. Maybe. So watch this space to see how yeah. it develops. Yeah, maybe. Excellent. Awesome. Um, thanks so much for your time today. I know you're super busy. You've had lots and lots of children on site today and young people. I wove my way past them to get here. But I'm just going to ask three last questions because I've been asking everyone these and it's a nice way to finish. Um, my first one is how do you relax? <laughs> mostly by being outdoors yeah. which is very relevant for you yeah. but in truth most yeah. of my relaxing time is what I'm thinking about is out in the great outdoors paddle boarding kayaking yeah. climbing cycling All those whatever yeah. fresh air excellent and what are you reading or listening to right now in a complete break from the norm <laughs> I'm reading a thriller which is by um, Frank Gardner, the BBC security correspondent, Okay. Um, called Crisis. And I would never normally read that. I read loads of books about travel and climbing. Yeah. But uh, I was persuaded to try. And is it good? Yeah. Yeah, really yeah. good. Yeah. Bit of a break. Yeah. 
And why is being outdoors important to you? Uh, I think it's a place where I can uh, often get a clarity that I, or just a lack of the hubbub <laughs> that yeah. I appreciate. It's not about peace and quiet necessarily, but, but quite often I get a lot more clear thinking outside. Yeah. I like having a horizon to look at yeah. and I like having a view and yeah. uh, like some clear air and cold water and things. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Excellent. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of your uh, uh, listeners will feel the same. Yes, yeah, I think so. But everyone always answers this question a little bit differently, so I always like to ask it anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Matt. Thank you. Cheers. A big thank you again to Matt for taking time out of his busy schedule to join us to talk about conservation, about how the zoo approaches education and how they're celebrating their 100 year anniversary. We really enjoyed chatting to you, Matt, and we hope that those of you listening enjoyed it as well. If you did enjoy the episode, we'd love it if you would rate it, subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends so that more people can find us. We'll be back in two weeks and until then, thanks for listening.